0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic
1: and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 32 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And uh, if uh, if you've been following this podcast for a while, since the beginning perhaps, uh, you'll know that our very first guest uh, way back, I guess it was about two and a half years ago we started this podcast. And when I had this idea of starting the podcast, I said, uh, who better to sort of set the scene talking about uh, the geopolitics of both polar regions, the Arctic and Antarctic, than uh, Professor Klaus Dodds, a professor of geopolitics at uh, Royal Holloway University in London. So he was a guest on our first uh, two episodes. And I got to tell you that uh, those two episodes still attract uh, quite a few downloads. So now um, I had this idea just struck me really that uh, we should do a year-end review of 2020, the most unusual year of my lifetime and probably most of uh, your lifetimes as well, and uh, to reflect on what this has meant for the polar regions. And I said, well, who should I call other than Professor Klaus Dodds? And uh, he was uh, very graciously available on short notice and to have him on the phone line right now. So uh, Klaus, uh, thank you very much for joining us here on uh, Polar Geopolitics once again.
0: Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you. And congratulations on the podcast as well.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy with the way it's developed. We've had many great guests uh, over these couple of years. And uh, just uh, looking back in this uh, 2020 year, we're going to talk about both uh, the the Arctic and Antarctic and some trends that maybe uh, had started before this pandemic year and maybe were accelerated by this or kind of redirected. We're going to think big picture, maybe talk about some particular issues as well. But uh, just looking back on some of the guests that I had over this past year and some of the, the themes of this podcast, perhaps you can reflect on those and others that, that, that you think of that are that are some of the more important stories and, and trends of uh, 2020 and beyond. Um, the ones that I'm, that I'm thinking of in terms of what we've covered in this podcast this year would uh, be, the rise of this this idea of great power competition between the U.S., China, and Russia in the Arctic. Part of that uh, story is this uh, this um, kind of engagement of the United States in Greenland. Another one uh, from a, a guy that I think you've been working with, Klaus, uh, Alan Hemmings. We had an episode on this idea of, of governance being disrupted in uh, the Antarctic um, Treaty System because of the pandemic and the lack of ability to meet in person? Uh, and other, of course, uh, other issues, uh, maybe more local issues in terms of how the pandemic has, uh, has affected uh, Arctic communities. So, close, so just what would you say are some of the big stories of 2020 that you think are going to have a lasting impact?
0: Well, I, I think in terms of if we think about um, the pandemic and the sort of, uh, sort of global context, it's really produced two different sort of, I suppose, reactions. On the one hand, as you'd expect with a pandemic, or at least hope, I suppose. Um, We've seen some remarkable outpourings of local, regional, national, and global solidarities and mutual cooperation. It's not escaped most people's notice that if you take a pandemic seriously, then you really do need to think about and indeed act upon measures, public health measures, that uh, acknowledge that a pandemic or a virus does not stop at one particular border, let alone borders. So we can point to, if you like, evidence of public health collaboration and cooperation. Um, And certainly the World Health Organization has made it very, very clear that if there is to be a global response to this pandemic, it needs to be coordinated, information needs to be shared, and countries need to coordinate with one another in terms of those public health measures. But on the other hand, and the United States typifies this, we've also discovered that a pandemic is deeply, deeply divisive. People disagree about severity, people disagree about responses, and of course pandemics also have a habit of revealing inequalities Um, And that can be uh, anywhere from, for example, mortality rates, but it can also be in terms of the impact that things like lockdowns and border closures have on particular communities, let alone countries. And the link, I think, to the Arctic actually uh, is an interesting one because it sort of reveals those sort of cooperative, collaborative strands, but also those more Contested and those more awkward strands. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the one of the uh, difficulties that Arctic communities have faced, particularly the smaller, more isolated ones, is that uh, if if you impose, for example, a lockdown, or if, for example, you have an outbreak um, of uh, the the virus, then it very quickly magnifies pre-existing inequalities uh, and concerns, for example, about the health and the well-being of those affected communities. Um, I also think, for example, as, as was discussed in one of those recent podcasts, that great power competition, which has been much talked about in the Arctic, has also been part and parcel of the pandemic. So whether that, for example, involves Rival, uh, vaccine or vaccination projects or whether that involves, for example, the trading of accusations and insults about who was responsible for the pandemic, um, who isn't information sharing, uh, who or his, who is not, um, hindering, uh, the, the, uh, the path of the pandemic or not. So we've seen, I think, a really, really interesting relationship between the Arctic and the wider community, which the pandemic, I think, has just amplified further.
1: And perhaps a subset of that, uh, too, is this this idea we covered on one of the episodes this year, was this idea of pandemic diplomacy, where um, countries, uh, in particular this case was China, using the pandemic as an opportunity to uh, sort of extend their reach and to sort of um, Gain favor in certain places, uh, including in, in in the Arctic, and to kind of use that as a way to sort of um, highlight their own competencies and their own uh, geopolitical standing. Do you do you see that as as a, as, a, as a as a trend from this year as well?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's very much a sort of global trend in terms of pandemic diplomacy. So some of it, for example, has been um, say within Europe where. Countries have offered their medical facilities uh, to help out a neighbouring country uh, because the country affected has had its health service overwhelmed by the number of um, COVID patients. Uh, We've also seen China and Russia, for example, use um, medical supplies as a way to build Um, diplomatic and political linkages. And indeed, actually, some of those communities that on the the face of it have been beneficiaries have also expressed concern uh, that countries like Italy and Serbia were were almost too quick to accept um, these foreign remittances. But it's also been an opportunity for non-state actors, including, for example, charities and foundations, both in the US and in China, um, to use their investment uh, and their uh, programs of work to also build and project um, influence. So I think it's not just been um, states, it's also been non-state actors as well that have seen the pandemic as an opportunity to, to build relationships and to project what Joseph Nye once called soft power. So yes, I think we've, we've seen that both within the Arctic um, and, and certainly beyond. Um, we've also seen, I mean, another thing that I think has, has been revealed across the world, including the Arctic, has, has been um, some of the, the labour geographies that make um, global capitalism possible. So, for example, in Singapore, um, we've, we've certainly come to understand a great deal better the role of dormitories where fly-in, fly-out or long-term, indeed, um, foreign or third-party employees are housed, uh, and and the kind of crucial role they play in the construction sector. Well, if we travel north to uh, somewhere close to Mamansk, for example, there was an interesting case in April where a number of uh, foreign workers tested positive to coronavirus, and that particular community was at a construction site, um, helping to support Russian um, LNG project work. And what was interesting about the the news story was where the workers came from. So, for example, it may not have been the case that um, people who don't follow the Arctic very closely would have appreciated that some of those foreign workers come from countries like Turkey and the Central Asian republics. So you know again, that's sort of it's an interesting reflection, perhaps, on, what we sometimes talk about uh as the sort of the global arctic and you know if we're not careful that just becomes a sort of shorthand for talking about china's presence uh in the arctic but i think actually it can be more subtle than that and you can trace these different flows of people of money of technology coming in and out of the arctic and COVID, have, i think has again just provided another reminder. That the Arctic is entangled, for better or for worse, in a whole series of um, movements, including the movement of a virus.
1: I mean, this pandemic is certainly far from from being over at this point. Uh, we don't know how much longer it's going to last. I guess in the UK, you're already starting to get um, getting the vaccine already now, and um, you're in Sweden sometime soon, and other parts of the world coming up. But um, I mean, it's. Probably too early to say, but can you can you see, I mean, with all the suffering and all the the, the losers of this of this pandemic, uh, is there any way at this point to start assessing who might have uh, who might have benefited from this? Is there any way to sort of uh, do a a bit of a balance sheet as to the the winners and losers so far with the not not really the impacts, but the way that it was handled and the way that um, different different actors have repositioned themselves because of this pandemic?
0: Well, I I think that's a a really important question. And and clearly, it's a difficult one, because uh, as you note, it's still very much an ongoing situation. But the winners and losers have have been um, really quite diverse. So on the one hand, we've had, for example, uh, the professional middle classes, largely able to continue to do their job of work at home. And so one thing that I think you know, has not escaped the attention of many is uh, the savings, for example, in travel costs uh, and the uh, ability to home work that had previously, uh, I think, not been embraced by employers who thought that, you know, people should continue to commute on a near daily basis to their place of work. So, you know, you actually have had um, a whole cadre of people who actually may have even, as I say, saved money, have financially benefited from the pandemic. Perhaps it's even made their personal lives easier precisely because they're not doing, for example, long distance commuting. And that can be true anywhere in the world where you might have those sort of particularly professional service type jobs. Um, Another type of beneficiary uh, in in some cases has has been populist um, authoritarian leaders who have been able to use the pandemic um, to declare, for example, emergency powers and intervene in the life of citizens in a way that perhaps in the past um, would have been unimaginable. Now, uh, when we talk about the sort of the the new norm of this pandemic, that new norm, for example, uh, includes vast numbers of people, depending on the particular country, been placed under the most extraordinary um, restrictions, you know, where you're you effectively deliberately desocialised everyday life. Um, other beneficiaries, we know, have been particular sectors. So, for example, on, online retail giants have clearly um, benefited. Um, so, I think it's what's really striking about this pandemic is that we've seen a whole series of things. Um, harden, um, not necessarily has uh, started or initiated during the pandemic itself, but sort of hardened. And some of those things will be around um, virtual working. Um, Some of this will be around a sort of populist authoritarianism. Um, Some of this will also be um, around the hard, hard wiring of inequality, and indebtedness, and even uh, deglobalization and a kind of uh, newfound focus and interest on supply chain resilience, which again will create um, new sets of winners and losers. I mean, one of the things that's often said, and this was a point made by the um, Canadian writer Naomi Klein, is that capitalism... Has an extraordinary uh, ability to find profit in the midst of disaster. And I think what um, we will find is there is a a sort of a pandemic capitalism that will um, succeed in generating profitability for some, but clearly there will be profound downsides for others in terms of health, in terms of livelihood, And as I say, in terms of further hardwiring of inequality, you only have to think about the people, often the low-paid, often ethnic minorities, um, who did not have that choice of, for example, home working. So I think the pandemic in that sense has been really, quite frankly speaking, brutal in revealing who gets to live and ultimately who gets to die.
1: In terms on the, uh, the geopolitical level in states, were there any states that it might have profited from this, not maybe economically, but uh, geopolit- geopolitically speaking? Uh, or were there others you think have really uh, taken a step back uh, because of this pandemic and uh, and the, the way it's been managed?
0: Well, I mean, for example, if you, if you think about the countries that have had, quote-unquote, good pandemics, they seem to fall into two categories. They've either been very small states, um, often led by Uh, women presidents and prime ministers who have acted decisively and effectively uh, sealed borders and and, uh, encouraged uh, very strongly an extraordinary collective response. So, you know, one of the most notable examples in that category was uh, Jacinda Ardern, New Zealand. But on the other hand, it's also been... um, Uh, a sort of a good news story in an odd sort of way for China, uh, which initially, of course, was being thought of as the villain of the piece. You know, Donald Trump was very quick to describe it as the Wuhan virus, even though the World Health Organization asked uh, him and others not to do so. But also what the Chinese authorities were able to do, of course, was to impose extraordinary far-reaching lockdowns and also to use um, facilities to ensure that, for example, returning Chinese citizens were quarantined before being allowed back to their home environments. And so one of the questions that you might ask is, if the world is going to continue to face more uh, viral infections that have every likelihood of of being pandemic-like, and as we know, we also have intensifying climate change, then is one of the winners of this pandemic going to be authoritarianism? And is one of the losers of this pandemic going to be liberal democracy as currently conceived? And I think what we're seeing in a lot of countries is a drift towards this authoritarian populism um, that will put liberal democratic norms and values under consideration. Considerable stress and strain, even in my own country, the United Kingdom. You know, we have, in large part, seen our national parliament sidelined in the last nine to ten months, as government has uh, sought to invoke emergency powers uh, to, you know, to argue that it has to act now, often with limited or post hoc scrutiny.
1: I think two and a half years ago, Klaus, when we first talked on, on this podcast, we were talking about the Arctic Council as being a, as being a beacon of, of sorts uh, for a liberal democracy, and, and, you, and you were one of the ones that supported uh, a nomination for the uh, the Nobel Prize for the Arctic Council. So, with this this continuing downtrend, let's say for this for liberal democracy, um, perhaps accelerated by the pandemic, do you still see the Arctic Council and um, and this notion of the global Arctic as uh, as as a, as a Counter a counterweight to that, or do you see also the the Arctic Council and other other governance structures in the polar regions, the ATS and such, as um, as uh, standing up to this to this trend?
0: Well, I think the the Arctic Council um, has at its core, you know, uh, this forum like uh, capacity to bring obviously interested and important stakeholders together notably, of course, the Arctic states and the permanent participants, you know, the six indigenous peoples' organizations. And that's incredibly important uh, for cementing a, you know, a distinctly circumpolar sense of the Arctic. But then what, of course, I think destabilizes that is, is this, you know, talk of great power competition. And the global Arctic, as a sort of umbrella term, is a is a double edged affair you know you know and again you see um, you know indigenous peoples, Arctic states, northern communities um, acting as global actors and certainly benefiting from global networks and interactions, albeit in very different ways. but it also means that some of the things that you might not care for in terms of beyond the Arctic also spill over or infiltrate. Or work their way through um, Arctic institutions, Arctic ecologies and landscapes, and communities. Now, of course, this has been, um, you know, a challenge for the Arctic for an awful long time. You know, we we, we don't need to rehearse too too hard, long range pollutants or historic and um, colonial patterns of exploitation and intervention to recognise that. But I think it it does produce this very double-edged affair where, um, you know, just as, for example, indigenous people of northern communities are being granted further rights and recognition, uh, articulating their own wishes and interests, you know, they, they now, of course, are confronted with a new wave of great power competition. So in the past, you know, we might have spoken about The Cold War as great power competition. Well, now we have three parties vying to make their their presence felt. So, in other words, there is, I think, understandably a concern about how these issues of, for example, security and continental defence fit with other issues that are huge importance to Arctic communities, such as sustainable development. you know, climate justice, um, these, these, are, I'm afraid, are going to rub up against each other in ever more awkward ways. And all the pandemic does is add further stress and strain, um, particularly, as I say, to smaller isolated communities. Um, you know, you even think of a country like Iceland. You know, COVID is, is absolutely atrocious for tourism. And and for a country that has based so much of its post-financial crisis recovery plans on tourism, that's it. That's been a huge shock to the system.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. Iceland and, and other other Arctic communities and, and even Antarctica. Maybe there's no there's no stakeholders in Antarctica that depend on tourism, but certainly um, companies and others that uh, that have made uh, have made uh, these. Uh, Polar destinations part of their business model. Do you see that as something that's going to come back at some point, uh, this idea of polar tourism, whether it's Iceland or cruises to Antarctica, cruises in the Arctic, or do you think that's, that's been really disrupted by this, or is it just too early to tell what the long-range um, patterns and, and consumption behavior will be uh, going forward?
0: So I think that for me there, there are a couple aspects to this. First of all, the Arctic and Antarctic tourism are two very different um, industries. In the sense of the operating environment, um, clearly uh, varies because of the political and legal context um, that the two polar regions operate uh, with. But I think what will be interesting um, going forward in 2021 onwards is to see uh, risk management play out or how that plays out. So, for example, you know, will we see Chinese operators uh, in the Antarctic seeking to take advantage of a tourism industry that has been hit hard elsewhere and where the appetite for risk perhaps is, is rather different. I mean, this has already been a, a sort of point of speculation about Antarctic science and logistics. You know, we've, we've clearly in the last nine or 10 months had an awful lot of disruption to the way in which um, countries plan their their science. And we might well see an increasing trend towards automation in scientific stations or even base reduction and and a lot more sort of base sharing as countries try to work out what's the best way of ensuring that um, they are COVID secure. Other countries, of course, might take a a more relaxed view about COVID, or perhaps, for example, they're simply having, as I said earlier, a better pandemic than, say, the United States. And that might then create, yet again, opportunities for some, losses for others. So, you know, could we see, for example, the two partners, China and Russia, um, seek to um, capitalise upon this? and to expand their interests, whether it's fishing or tourism in the Antarctic, for example, where others fear to tread. I mean, that's the kind of thing, I think, particularly in the Arctic, um, we we should look quite carefully in terms of how activities not only return, but at what scale and intensity. And does that tell us something interesting about how countries are responding to the challenges of the pandemic? Um, and clearly everyone's making adjustments. But those adjustments don't necessarily always have to involve shrinkage and retreat. I think that, that's for me, would be the thing that I'd keep an eye on.
1: And on the uh, topic of Antarctica, I um, had a very interesting discussion uh, on an earlier episode of this podcast with um, New Zealand scholar Alan Hemmings, who I believe you you were a collaborator with, um, on this idea of this, the pandemic just because people can't meet, the, the, the different... Um, um, the different uh, bodies within the Antarctic treaty system, haven't been able to meet this year in person, um, has disrupted sort of the the way that the the Antarctic is governed. I mean, that that discussion I had with him was was maybe six months ago at this point, or or seven months ago. How has that played out? Has that been been something that has had some, perhaps, lasting impact on the way Antarctica is governed? And uh, how do you see um, that, um, the governance of Antarctica and the geopolitics of Antarctica uh, being affected by this in the let's say, medium-term?
0: So, yes, I mean, Alan Hemmings and I wrote a piece together for the Hague Journal of Diplomacy um, called The Antarctic Diplomacy in the Time of Pandemic, and um, that was published in the, um, earlier this year. And one of the arguments that um, we, we made in, in that piece was, how does the cessation of face-to-face diplomacy affect a governance system, aka the Antarctic Treaty system, um, which is based on consensus. And so much of that consensual labour uh, is not only secured, of course, through formal meetings uh, involving, for example, the, um, the CAMALA, which deals with living resources, fish, or of course the consultative meetings of the Antarctic Treaty parties. And if if, there, if that's one area of decision making, another area, of course, that's often talked about by Antarctic insiders, is the sort of the corridor talk. You know, is the is those informal conversations uh, that occur outside the formal arenas. Um, this is particularly noticeable, I think, in Hobart, uh, where every October uh, discussions are had around. Fishing and what kind of conservation measures are going to be imposed on various um, regions of the Southern Ocean. So I think um, we, when we wrote that piece, were very interested, indeed, even concerned that um, virtual diplomacy, whilst not unheard of, uh, really is really was going to be quite novel to the Antarctic Treaty Parties, much of whom, or which or rather, is is not. Set up or was not set up for for virtual working, and um, you know just as for example home working and you know virtual immigration and all these kinds of things have have gradually taken seed uh, this year for so many people, um, the Antarctic Treaty Parties were also having to learn how to do I suppose what we call Zoom diplomacy, but of course it's hard you know you've got a number of parties that are are consultative party status, you've got four official treaty languages, and you're also negotiating over things that are intrinsically sensitive um, so for example, you know how much fish can you extract in any particular season and then of course, what complicates matters further is that um, delegations, national delegations to these meetings also change. In some cases, of course, there's been tremendous continuity. So one of the reasons why the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, Norway, Australia, New Zealand have been such a, a, a powerful grouping within the Antarctic Treaty system is because the officials um, involved in polar affairs have often been long-standing. So they get to know each other, they form social as well as professional relationships. Now, If you're having to deal with countries where you have awkward relationships with, particularly China and Russia, and if those delegations are changing as well, or perhaps they're represented by people who are lawyers as opposed to, say, polar scientists, then the sort of the atmospherics um, become infinitely harder. And I think, you know, when you can't speak to somebody in person, as we know in everyday life, uh, particularly people we don't know well, Um, then, of course, it becomes a great deal harder. So one of the arguments made uh, this autumn uh, was that the failure to secure agreement over additional marine protected areas in the Southern Ocean was made uh, all the more obvious precisely because these meetings were virtual and um, it was easier in some senses for parties who were not keen on the marine protected areas proposals say no, because they didn't have to look the other party in the eye, so to say, and to repeat um, that reticence to act. So I think it's, it's, you know, it's something to watch very carefully about what happens uh, to these organizations that are grounded in consensus when face-to-face diplomacy is no longer an option.
1: You mentioned the early concerns you had uh, when the the pandemic first struck about how it would disrupt, um, potentially disrupt um, this this intricate uh, system of Antarctic governance. If you could speak um, in general, uh, Klaus, uh, perhaps to to kind of start rounding things off here in this discussion, very interesting discussion we're having here. um, What concerns and or hopes do you have um, with this year, 2020, thankfully almost uh, behind us? And is there any ways that uh, we can perhaps... Maybe not we in particular, but just the, the polar community uh, writ large can actively engage to shape the future um, in the wake of this pandemic. And, uh, and just to add on to that question slightly, um, would you say, and, and it's probably too early to say, I'm almost certain it's too early to say, but do you see 2020 in, in a polar geopolitics context? Do you see this as potentially a watershed year that might change things substantially uh, for years ahead? Or do you see it more as an aberration that once we are all vaccinated and get back to normal, the polar geopolitics will continue to sort of move to the same rhythm they've been moving prior to 2020?
0: So uh, let me I, I think let me say one of the one of the one of the real positives about this pandemic. Um, they're, they're not many, but I think there are two I would draw attention to. First of all, I think. We have had a terrible shock, but a shock we probably needed to have as a global community to make us realize that some of the things that we've had to give up, um, for example, such as international travel, many people had. We probably needed to have these conversations in a far more urgent and consistent manner I, I, you know, I absolutely feel for climate change scientists who have been warning and warning that the 2020s are absolutely pivotal um, in terms of making urgent and sustained transition um, away from the current um, consumption uh, patterns and uh, behaviours. Uh, particularly the the global elite, are responsible for. So in some senses, the pandemic has helped, I think, to focus attention on something even larger, which is about um, earthly sustainability and the extraordinary inequalities in terms of who is responsible, if you will, uh, for CO2 emissions. On a slightly more localized scale, I think one of the great outcomes of the pandemic um, has been an extraordinary flourishing of academic debate and exchange, albeit virtually. Um, And I think one of the things that virtual networking, virtual workshops, groups of people who previously may not have had the opportunity to talk and work with one another. You know, in the past, for example, a number of us would have, you know, received invitations to go and travel somewhere. And that was, of course, an extraordinary privilege. Um, as much of that has, has now ceased, we've also seen far more involvement of scholars from all over the world coming together to talk about areas of mutual interest, including the polar region. So I think the polar community, and I hope others who are listening to this who are part of that polar academic community agree with me, that um, we have seen, I think, some really excellent um, examples of, of sort of polar seminar series, networking, much of it involving early career researchers, which is exciting. And I think that's all to the good. Now, I think in terms of the things that um, we need to sort of see how they play out, um, virtual working, of course, has its, um, has its virtues, if you will, in the sense of you can potentially bring people together uh, in, a, in a more responsive mode. And, you know, it is quite possible to imagine a, a model also where decision making might be quicker, might be more efficient, then perhaps one where, you know, you have an awful lot of work involved in terms of preparing for face-to-face diplomacy and, and governance. The pandemic works, of course, in another way, which is that, you know, it's always well saying, well, the pandemic is almost like a dress rehearsal for what we really need to do collectively in terms of tackling things like climate change. But there's another way of looking at it, which is the pandemic also is a watershed, but it's a watershed that is made more by great power competition than it is by climate change. So imagine a scenario, for example, where China and Russia in particular use the pandemic to insist that the Antarctic Treaty system is overhauled. Um, so scholars like Alan Hennings, as we mentioned earlier, have warned that the Antarctic Treaty system is being hollowed out or you know, is becoming sclerotic. Well, maybe China and Russia say, no, no, it's time for a change now. Uh, And insists that actually all meetings should be done virtually. That there's no need for face-to-face meetings. There's no need to gather in a capital city for 14 days or 10 working days. Uh, We can we can do things in a couple of days, and it can be a a jolly sight quicker. Now that may not suit those who have laboured over the last 60 years to create a very intimate face-to-face consensual environment. So I think it's it's probably true. the world over, that this turn to the virtual, for example, as a way of working or a way of living, which clearly predated the pandemic, doesn't necessarily produce better governance. It doesn't necessarily inculcate social justice or the uh, addressing of inequality. And I think we need to be very, very careful about how these often very delicate governance systems operate in both the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, respond in this sort of pandemic, let alone post-pandemic era. So I'm not necessarily being optimistic. I'm certainly not necessarily assuming um, a pessimistic future. But we are going to see, I think, an intensification of interest and I think inevitably disagreement about how we respond to both the Arctic and the Antarctic.
1: Well, the post-pandemic period that, uh, that you referenced there at the end, let's hope that uh, comes sooner rather than later. But uh, Professor uh, Klaus Dodds, uh, really, thank you very much for joining us here during this uh, rather busy time right before Christmas. And I wish you uh, and your family uh, happy holidays. And um, thanks again for joining us here on Polo Geopolitics, revisiting some of the themes that we brought up even back two and a half years ago on the uh, first and second episode of this podcast. And we, we truly hope to have you back on again at some point in the not too distant future.
0: Thanks, Eric. I'm very grateful for the invitation and and wishing everybody happy holidays.